Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Taming the Shrew podcast. This week, we come to you from the windswept rooftops of Over the Rhine in Cincinnati, where we're having another journal club. And this time, we're talking about airway interventions during cardiac arrest, bag valve mask, extragalactic devices, intubation. Which of these actually is going to result in the best outcomes for our patient? Logistically, bag valve mask or extragalactic device seem to be potentially the most feasible. However, do these interventions actually result in improved outcomes for patients, or, or are they harmful for patients? We're going to look at a trio of articles as well as discuss briefly an abstract that was presented at SAAM in 2018 that are looking at these interventions for patients both in the pre-hospital environment as well as the in-hospital environment. So first up, we have Tim Murphy, third-year resident, soon-to-be fourth-year and chief resident here at University of Cincinnati. The article that I'll be talking about is called Effective Bag Mass Ventilation Versus Endotracheal Intubation During Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation on Neurological Outcome After Out-of-Hospital Cardiorespiratory Arrest by Jabre et al. This was published in JAMA earlier this year. The purpose of this study, as the title implies, is to compare bag mass ventilation and endotracheal intubation in the treatment of patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The hypothesis was that bag mass ventilation was not inferior to endotracheal intubation with respect to 28-day favorable neurological outcome. The study was a randomized, multi-center, non-inferiority trial. And before we discuss more about this particular study, I wanted to quickly review what exactly a non-inferiority trial is. In general, there are three major trial designs used in research. These are superiority trials, equivalence trials, and non-inferiority trials. Superiority trials are what we typically think of when we think of research. The goal of a superiority trial is to show that the study treatment is superior to a control. However, if the study fails to demonstrate superiority, that does not mean the interventions are necessarily equal. To prove that, you need to perform an equivalent study to prove the two treatments are in fact equal in efficacy. Non-inferiority trials look to demonstrate that the study treatment is not inferior to the control treatment. That is, it is not worse than the control. In order to determine that an intervention is not worse than the control, the investigators need to decide on something called the non-inferiority margin. The non-inferiority margin is also called the delta. This is predetermined by the investigators before the study begins and represents the maximum difference between the intervention and control groups the investigators are willing to accept to still call the intervention non-inferior. Another way of explaining this concept is to say that the goal of a non-inferiority trial is to demonstrate that the treatment is not worse than the control by more than a pre-specified amount. This amount is the delta or non-inferiority margin. Hopefully this concept is clear because it's pivotal to interpreting non-inferiority studies. So back to our study. This study involved 20 pre-hospital EMS centers in two countries, France and Belgium. Patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest were randomized into either receiving bag mass ventilation or endotracheal intubation as their airway management during compressions. If ROSC was obtained, both patients in both groups were then intubated by the medical team. In the bag mass ventilation group, if there was difficulty with ventilation or in cases of massive regurgitation of gastric contents during ventilation, the rescue procedure was endotracheal intubation. In the endotracheal intubation group, rescue was determined by a standard airway protocol used by the EMS system, which included use of a bougie and or LMA. Inclusion criteria for the study were adults aged over 18 with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Exclusion criteria were patients with suspected massive aspiration before resuscitation, presence of a DNR, known pregnancy, or imprisonment. 
It is important to recognize that the EMS teams in this study were made up of an ambulance driver, a nurse, and an EM attending physician. The EM physician was the sole provider performing the intubations. The primary outcome of the study was survival at 28 days with favorable neurologic outcome, which was defined as a Glasgow-Pittsburgh cerebral performance category of two or less. This essentially means that the patient needed to be conscious and have sufficient cerebral function to perform part-time work or be independent with their ADLs. Other endpoints of the study included rate of survival to hospital admission, rate of survival at 28 days, rate of ROSC, intubation and bag mass ventilation difficulty, and rate of bag mass ventilation or intubation failure. The authors calculated that to get 80% power, they would need to recruit a total of 2,000 patients for the study. They also defined their non-inferiority margin to be 1%. This means that the authors were willing to accept a non-inferiority of bag mass ventilation group if its outcome were no more than 1% worse than the outcome of the endotracheal intubation group. They calculated this margin based on the margins of several other similar studies. The secondary endpoints were all tested for superiority. 2,043 patients were enrolled in the study with 1,020 patients in the bag mass ventilation group and 1,023 in the intubation group. So the study group did meet their enrollment goals. In regards to the primary outcome, there was a favorable functional survival rate of 4.3% in the bag mass ventilation group and 4.2% in the intubation group. The confidence interval was negative 1.64% to infinity. Since the confidence interval crossed the non-inferiority margin, they could not demonstrate non-inferiority. For secondary outcomes, they demonstrated that the rate of ROSC was significantly greater in the endotracheal intubation group at 38.9% versus 34.2%. However, the differences in survival to hospital admission and survival at day 28 were not significant between the two groups. They did have slightly, slightly higher rates of airway management difficulty, failure, and regurgitation of gastric contents in the bag mass ventilation group when compared to the endotracheal intubation group. The authors in their discussion and conclusion essentially just reiterated that the study failed to demonstrate non-inferiority or inferiority and that further research was needed. They did mention that the study was likely underpowered. They calculated the enrollment numbers, assuming a greater likelihood of favorable neurologic outcome in the bag mass ventilation group, and they did this because of prior observational studies that showed better neurologic outcomes for bag mass ventilation when compared to intubation. However, in this study, the outcomes were much closer than expected, with only a 0.1% difference between the two groups. Because of this, they would have needed a much larger sample size to demonstrate non-inferiority. Another important consideration is that the EMS team in the study included both a nurse and a physician. This makes generalizability to the U.S. a bit more difficult, as we typically have different pre-hospital staffing. The authors in the study did mention that emergency physicians likely have more experience and training with intubation, perhaps improving the outcomes in this group compared to the bag mass ventilation group. They also thought that physician comfort with endotracheal intubation may have led to an increased number of bag mass ventilation failures as they are quicker to jump to intubation. While the study did not demonstrate non-inferiority, I think there are several takeaways that I get from the paper. Despite a very large sample size, there is little difference in 28-day favorable neurologic outcomes with bag mass ventilation. However, there did seem to be more difficulties with bag mass ventilation and more episodes of regurgitation. With this, what I'm going to tell my EMS squads is that if bag mass ventilation is going well, that is, there is good chest rise, good mass seal, and no regurgitation in the mask, there is no need to automatically move towards intubation. They should focus on good chest compressions and ACLS. However, if there are difficulties with bag mass ventilation for whatever reason, 
then moving towards intubation is a reasonable option depending on the comfort level of the squad. However, this assumes that they are using good bagging technique, which is obviously pivotal for effective bag mass ventilation. One obvious question that comes from this article is the efficacy of extraglottic devices in cardiac arrest, which we will address later on in the podcast. And now we're going to turn our attention from the outpatient to the inpatient with Nicole Soria, third-year resident here at UC. I will be talking about an article called Association Between Tracheal Intubation During Adult and Hospital Cardiac Arrest and Survival by Anderson et al. Tracheal intubation during cardiac arrest in adults have been de-emphasized since 2010, and in 2015, the guidelines of both the American Heart Association and the European Resuscitation Council also de-emphasized advanced airway placement as a component of initial resuscitations, stating that either a bag valve mask device or an advanced airway may be used for ventilation and oxygenation during cardiac arrest. Unfortunately, the guidelines fail to give an optimal approach to airway management as well as they lack in differentiating between the out-of-hospital and in-hospital settings. While there have been a few relatively small randomized trials conducted in the out-of-hospital setting to assess the efficacy of advanced airway management, these results are not necessarily applicable to the in-hospital setting as there are limitations which include, but are not limited to, cardiac arrest etiology, skills of the healthcare professionals, and timing of interventions. In this study, the investigators examined resuscitations of more than 108,000 patients in 668 hospitals in order to determine whether tracheal intubation during adult and hospital cardiac arrest is associated with survival to hospital discharge. Researchers found that 70% of patients were intubated during their code and that the majority, about 95%, occurred within the first 15 minutes of resuscitation. Patients who had an initial rhythm that was non-shockable, such as PEA or systole, were more likely to be intubated versus those with shockable rhythms, VFAB or VTAC, at a rate of 69% versus 53%. In a time-matched propensity analysis, this study showed that patients who were intubated during the resuscitation were significantly less likely to survive to discharge versus those who were not, 16% versus 19%. And they were less likely to be discharged with a good functional status, 11% versus 14%. The authors included multiple subgroup analysis, including looking at the initial rhythm, the illness category, respiratory insufficiency, and location where the arrest occurred. The study raises important questions about established practice and reminds physicians that attempts to end intubation can be detrimental when they interrupt chest compressions or slow defibrillation, as you are potentially delaying life-saving interventions, particularly in patients who go into arrest with a shockable rhythm. The study has multiple strengths, including being a multi-center study with a large data set that is generalizable to our population. Their use of time-based propensity attempts to minimize the effects of confounding variables. Weaknesses that have been pointed out of unsuccessful intubations not being recorded and the time taken to intubate being unknown could be confounding. However, the former would fall into a failed intubation, which are associated with poor outcomes, and these patients would fall into the no intubation category. Thus, any potential bias would be toward the null and could not be explained in the findings reported. Other weaknesses include higher oxygen concentration delivery with intubation, which would indicate oxygen management as a culprit of the bad outcome and not necessarily the intubation. So overall, this study showed that patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest who are intubated have an increase in mortality. The results were significant in both the unadjusted results as well as in the time propensity score matched analysis. It potentially highlights the importance of minimal interruptions to effective chest compressions and has helped to demonstrate that further studies should be undertaken. 
Hey guys, my name is Bobby Whitford, and I'm one of the third year, about to be fourth year, emergency medicine residents at the University of Cincinnati. And I have the pleasure of discussing one of my favorite topics in emergency medicine, which is airway management in cardiac arrest with you today. The article I will be summarizing is from Resuscitation in 2015, and it is entitled Endotracheal Intubation versus Superglottic Airway Placement in Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, a Meta-Analysis. The authors are the illustrious Justin Benoit, Ryan Garrett, Mike Stewart-Wald, and Jason McMullen. I must confess that these are all uh, Cincinnati locals, and some of them are um, mentors of mine, and so it's an honor to review their paper. So... What they did was um, they reviewed did an extensive review of multiple databases looking for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest outcomes with airway management performed by EMS personnel comparing endotracheal intubation versus supraglottic airway placement. The major databases they, they scored were PubMed, Scopus, and the Cochrane databases, and uh, it was current as of 2014. And what they hypothesized was that endotracheal intubation would have a worse outcome. So they included all out-of-hospital cardiac arrests where the airway was managed by EMS. So this excluded physician airway management or nurse management. And they compared endotracheal intubation to any supraglottic airway. So this could include a King laryngeal tube, a combi tube, a LMA, or an IGEL. So overall, they reviewed 3,454 titles which they distilled down to 325 abstracts, and finally to 96 full texts. And of those 96 full texts, 10 ultimately met the inclusion criteria. What they excluded were patients who suffered traumatic arrest, pediatric patients, physician or nurse intubators, rapid sequence intubation, video laryngoscopy, and they also made efforts to exclude overlapping databases to um, prevent double-counting uh, different cardiac arrests. So the outcomes... First was return of spontaneous circulation, and then after that was survival of admission, survival to hospital discharge, and survival to discharge neurologically intact. And what they found, they reported as odds ratios, was favorable for all three outcomes. For ROSC, they had an odds ratio was 1.28 in favor of endotracheal intubation. Survival to admission was 1.34, more likely, in favor of endotracheal intubation. Neurologically intact survival was 1.33 in favor of endotracheal intubation. Survival to discharge, however, was only 1.15, and this was not statistically significant. But all of the other three endpoints were significant. It's worth mentioning that of the 10 observational cohort studies they included, they were all just that, observational cohort studies. There were no randomized control trials in this meta-analysis. They used a grade methodology to determine the level of uh, quality of the evidence for these studies, and all of the studies included were either low or very low quality evidence. In total, the meta-analysis included 75,000 patients. 41,000 received supraglottic airways, and 34,000 were intubated. The conclusion was that patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who received endotracheal intubation by EMS are more likely to have ROSC, survival to admission, and neurologically intact survival. The authors hypothesized many reasons why supraglottic airways may have failed. Um, they hypothesized there may be more, more rates of aspiration, pneumothorax, upper airway bleeding and swelling, esophageal lacerations, poor aeroseals leading to ineffective ventilation and leak. And interestingly, there is one study 
in a porcine model showing that King Airways decreased carotid blood flow, which is interesting, but has never been shown in humans. Now, there are some notable weaknesses of this study. First, they were all, R- they were all observational studies. There were no RCTs. And second is that there are several co-founders at play. For instance, the largest study included in the meta-analysis, Tanabe 2013, which composed 50,000 of the, of the 75,000 cases, they had a 5% higher rate of a witnessed arrest in the endotracheal tube group and a 4% higher rate of bystander CPR in the endotracheal tube group. And there were similar there were similar discrepancies in some of the other large studies contributing to this meta-analysis, which I think is has to be taken into consideration. In addition, most of these trials did not provide information as to how many of the patients who received a supraglottic airway ultimately received it because they had failed multiple attempts at endotracheal intubation. And in my opinion, that's likely the greatest weakness of this meta-analysis. So I think the take-home from this study is, first of all, hats off to the authors for doing the most robust literature review on this topic I could find to date. But I think there's not much we can take away from it. Their final conclusion was that endotracheal embasin may be superior, but that clearly randomized control trials are needed to settle the issue, which leads us to our next paper. I have another article for you. Actually, that was not quite honest. This is an abstract, but it's hot off the press. Article is not in print yet, but this is from SAEM 2018. And the article is from Wang et al. And quick shout out to my medical school alma mater, the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. They're doing great research down there, obviously. So thank you, Dr. Wang, for this, uh, for this, for this cutting-edge study. What we have is laryngeal tube versus endotracheal intubation in out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium Pragmatic Airway Resuscitation Trial. So this is the first randomized control trial in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients comparing intubation to a supraglottic airway. The laryngeal tube they mentioned in this study title was a king airway. And a brief talk on the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium. This is a multi-center group in North America, including many sites in the United States on both coasts and in Canada, who pooled the data to attempt to find uh, the best evidence in resuscitation research. I think it's worth noting, though, that this particular study recruited patients from the Alabama group, Dallas-Fort Worth, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, and Portland sites. So what they did was these patients in each EMS agency were randomizing clusters to an initial airway management strategy of a king airway or an endotracheal intubation. And every three to five months, the agencies would cross over to the other airway management modality. The primary outcome was 72-hour survival, and secondary outcomes were ROSC, with survival to hospital discharge, and survival with good neurological status. So overall, they enrolled 3,005 patients, 1,506 received a king airway, and 1,499 received endotracheal intubation. And what did they get? Well, each outcome favored king airway placement. 72-hour survival, 18.2% for the king versus 15.3% for intubation. ROSC was 27.9% versus 24.1% in favor of the king. Survival to discharge was 10.8% versus 8.0% in favor of king. And neurologically intact survival was 7% 
versus 5% once again in favor of King Airway placement. It's also worth noting that they did not find any significant differences in oropharyngeal or hypopharyngeal injuries, pneumonia, or pneumonitis between the two groups. And the conclusion, while in this multi-center randomized control trial, management by EMS personnel placing a King Airway in adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest showed better outcomes than endotracheal intubation. All right, great. Thanks, everybody. So let's, uh, let's now go sort of around the table and figure out what everybody's takeaway is from all this literature. And we obviously have a lot of different papers here that seem to have a lot of different answers. And so uh, with that, you know, where do we stand now? What instructions do we give to those uh, pre-hospital providers who are uh, performing intubations? What uh, considerations do we take to uh, performing airway interventions on patients who have cardiac arrest in the hospital. So let's go around the table. First, we'll start with uh, uh, Dr. Tim Murphy. Thank you. So after looking over all these papers, the takeaway that I get from them is that endotracheal intubation during cardiac arrest should not be a mandatory endeavor. I feel that there's no clear literature showing improved outcomes with endotracheal intubation compared to these other methods um, of airway management. However, if there is any reason to believe that the current airway maneuver that you're using, whether it be an LMA, King device, um, or other extraglottic device, or bag valve mask uh, ventilation is ineffective. That is, there is any vomit um, coming up through the, through the device, or if you're feeling there's not a good seal, you're having difficulty ventilating, um, or you don't have a great end tidal CO2 tracing, um, and you believe that the device you're using is not effective, then you should move towards intubation. But I don't think that the literature really supports automatically moving towards intubation off the bat for all of these patients. So I completely agree with Dr. Murphy on this one. There are multiple reasons why, in theory, endotracheal intubation could be worse. It may lead to prolonged interruptions in CPR, delays to defibrillation, delays to epinephrine, and obviously unrecognized esophageal intubations are disastrous. Additionally, endotracheal intubation could lead to hyperventilation, which increases intrathoracic pressure, decreasing preload, and hyperoxia is increasingly recognized to be detrimental to our patients as well. There are also many reasons why superglottic airways may not be as, as good. They don't control the airway. Aspiration is still a risk. They could lead to upper airway tongue edema and airway edema, the poor ventilation from an ineffective seal, and this concept of decreased carotid blood flow is also interesting, but I don't think has panned out. Personally, when I have a cardiac arrest patient coming in with a King Airway, there are three items I look for to verify that the supraglottic airway is ventilating effectively. And I think the burden of proof is upon us as expert airway managers to verify that these devices are effective prior to becoming complacent with their use during our resuscitation. So the first one, like Tim said, is a good end tidal waveform tracing. The second one is easy bag valve ventilation and breath sounds bilaterally. And my third is lack of visible emesis coming up around or through the tube, in which case it's not protecting the airway and it should be exchanged, in my opinion, for an endotracheal tube. But lastly, if you as a clinician have a suspicion that this patient had a cardiac arrest due to a primary respiratory event, such as bad COPD or asthma, pneumonia, ARDS, or pulmonary edema, there's no evidence that a laryngeal mask airway can provide effective ventilation and positive pressure ventilation to reverse those conditions. And in that case, I would also move immediately to endotracheal intubation. And finally, if you're getting ready to call the code, I have no problem 
with placement of an endotracheal tube purely for the purpose of getting the practice. That way, when your patient comes to you who is going to be potentially saved by having that tube placed by an expert, you're ready and prepared. So I agree 100% with both Drs. Murphy and Dr. Whitford um, in regards to the outpatient setting. My article was a little bit different as in, as in the, it was in an in-hospital setting. Uh, and I think that in relation to that, for me personally, what I would do um, among my patients who are adults who have a cardiac arrest inpatient, um, this study just really showed that there's no significant benefit shown to intubating a patient during the first 15 minutes of resuscitation. Uh, and in fact, it was actually associated with decreased survival to hospital discharge and decreased um, functional outcome. So for me personally, I think if a patient has a cardiac arrest in the hospital, my first focus would be on the CPR uh, and just having airway adjuncts available. Uh, but as long as, similar to outpatient EMS setting, you're getting good ventilation, oxygenation with Bag, bag valve mask or potentially uh, an extraglottic device, I wouldn't jump directly to intubating them unless it, they met one of those previous criteria such as vomit in the airway or a suspected primary uh, respiratory cause. So there you have it, a rundown of the current and future state of research as it pertains to airway management for cardiac arrest, both in hospital and out of hospital. Thanks again for joining us this week on the Taming the Shrew podcast, and we'll look forward to talking with you again soon.